big decisions, paths followed, choices made. This is Connections, conversations about life and work. I'm your host, Jim Allen. Peter Terween. Jim Allen, how are you? Right, I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Right away, you're, uh, I think you've broken two records by uh, being here on the program. Uh, he who has traveled the longest from Kamloops, BC. Okay, maybe not directly, but I'm still going to take it. Take the win. Um, and the person with the longest current job title. <laughs> yeah. Chief Social Purpose Officer and Vice President Player Experience for the BCLC, British Columbia Lottery Corporation. But I didn't have you, I didn't have you pegged as a big gambler. This is gambling new to your life, is it? It is. I work for uh, a gambling corporation, but that doesn't necessarily, interestingly enough, we have a lot of people that are not gamblers that work for the company, but they really like the fact that we are the largest non-tax source of revenue to the province and that yes. we, you know, that money goes into healthcare and education and arts and culture. And so that was, that's what motivates a lot of people. So, and Kamloops, I love it out there. Yeah. We were just talking before we started because I, I ski and I was out at Sun Peaks, which is, you got to go through Kamloops to uh, get there. Yep. Now, I, I always say, I love it out there. Kelowna, uh, Coldstream, uh, Lake Country. Um, um, I always say that I'd move out there in a heartbeat if I won the lottery. And then I thought, <laughs> wait a second, I know someone that works for a lottery. Maybe I'll talk to, talk to, okay. But so, boom. <laughs> so uh, I know you're you're all ethical and stuff. So that was a test. So did you create the social purpose position, or did did they recruit you? Did you see an ad, and did you? Uh, it came about apply? as follows: um, the board of directors. There was a new board of directors that was brought in in about uh, four years ago, and as part of uh, you know they uh, engaged in a strategic planning exercise together with the executive and. Uh, it was brought forward that BCLC should transition into a social purpose company and they needed somebody to do that work. And so they took what was formerly the VP of communications and CSR or corporate social responsibility job, which existed. That person had left and they recast it as the VP of social purpose and stakeholder engagement. However, about five months after I started in that role, we went through a reorg and I got a bunch of new responsibilities and my title changed uh, to Chief Social Purpose Officer and VP Player So experience. after you started. Yeah. So this is from the, I've done some research now, Peter. Uh -oh. So uh, from scary. the announcement, quote, Peter's professional experience spans the world of corporate, government, and nonprofit clients in North America, Europe, and Asia. He's mm -hmm. lived and worked in Canada, the Netherlands, and India, where he has advised companies and organizations on a range of values-based issues He's also developed various campaigns and initiatives focused around issues such as climate action, conservation, public health, and diversity and inclusion. I'm out of breath. That sounds <laughs> so impressive. Um, now, you strike me as a guy who just kind of is not afraid of just pull, pulling up stakes and just kind of going for it. I've done that. And, and your whole career has been evidence of that. So way back when you worked, I think, Communicate, right? Yep. Not We weren't there together, but McGrath and Associates, which I sort of knew you a little bit. I met you maybe. 
Uh, these don't even appear on your longish resume anymore. About that time, you decided to leave it all behind and go get your MBA in the Netherlands. So why did you do that? Well, I'm kind of unique in that I have a master's degree, but I don't have a bachelor's degree. Oh, and did you graduate high school? Yes, I Are did. Are we breaking news today? <laughs> no, 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 I did. And I became a, what's called a certified advertising agency practitioner, uh, which just gave me a designation to work in the marketing field. So like a diploma or something? Yeah, it was through the Institute of Canadian Advertisers. Uh, now it's called the Institute of Canadian Agencies. At the time it was called the Institute of Canadian Advertisers, I think. Um, and then that together with, with my graduate school admission, uh, and, and my work experience, some of which you've referenced earlier, I was given placement into the program. Yeah. I went to the Netherlands. Why did I do that? Cause I wanted European exposure yeah. and experience and I wanted some kind of credentials. I had been working, you know, in other roles and I just decided it was time to get something on my resume that showed that I had some sort of credibility beyond just my work experience. And that's why I did an MBA, but I, did a different kind of MBA was an MBA that specialized in environmental management. And um, that was pretty rare 30 years Back ago. Then. Was it worth it for you? 100%. Did it change your life? Did it? Uh... Absolutely. Because first of all, it gave me a, a credential that I didn't have. It exposed me to a well rounded business education, whether it was, you know, production management, uh, finance, you know, mergers and acquisition, finance, HR, whatever. It just gave me a grounding in a bunch of different dimensions. And then that environmental management piece, uh, I felt that was not too long after the uh, Rio conference on the environment that took place in the late 80s when the term sustainable development actually kind of entered the, the lexicon. And right. I view, I, I saw that there might be an opportunity to work at that intersection of business and environmental issues and social issues. And I think it was a bit ahead of my time, to be honest. It is now, you know, there, is, there isn't a business on the planet that can't be thinking of these things or they get canceled to a certain degree. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I was early and many of my business school peers, you know, they wanted to be brand managers or work for a consulting firm right. or whatever. And they thought I was crazy to specialize in environmental management. I quote, that's a career limiting move. Yeah. Well, guess what? Not so much. I thought you'd be a, a really interesting person to uh, interview because you've done so many different things. And then at a certain point, you uh, you went to India. So why did you go to India in the first place? Well, gosh, that's a, there's a long answer to that. I'll try and keep it short. But, but the last time we, I saw you, I don't even – it was several years ago, but you were just visiting – but you yes. were living in Mumbai, India at the time for at least Delhi, five years, yeah, right? Delhi. Five years? Yeah. From 2011 to 2016. Yep. It was a very contact sport, di different reality than living in right. North America for sure. Why do we end up there? The shortest story I can tell you is because India in 2010 brought in a law that required companies to spend of a certain size and profitability to spend a rolling three-year average of their profit, a 2%, sorry, of a rolling three-year average of their profits on corporate social responsibility initiatives. Now, wow. to be honest, which sounds very progressive, part of it is because of the government's failure to meet basic human needs. So it, it wasn't exactly a tax. It was a very cleverly designed law. And what they did was they didn't require companies to actually do the work. They required companies to report on whether or not they had done that work and whether they had made those investments. Right. And so there was a number of different NGOs and watchdogs, as it were, that would do annual lists of 
did a company did companies follow through or who did the best job and that sort of thing. So that's when the law came in about 12 years ago. And then I have a lot of experience in that corporate social responsibility world. After I finished my MBA, I went back to my communication roots. I used to be the chief communications and marketing officer for Mountain Equipment Co-op, now Mountain Equipment Company, for example. And then I went back into consulting world and always working at that intersection of business and sustainability. And I used to be the chair of Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. So when this law came forward in India, we had an agency in Vancouver. We just thought, well, this would be kind of interesting to go to India for a while. And, you know, there is no shortage of both opportunities and issues to address around corporate social responsibility in India. So we thought it was fertile ground. And you know, conscious of not trying to be having that colonial mentality, like, oh, we're the white Western guys and we know better. But it it certainly, you know, we brought some skill sets and other relationships and things to to the party, as it were, and ended up, you know, working with some of the largest Indian corporations on their corporate social responsibility initiatives. And then there was a number of NGOs because it was suddenly this flood of money NGOs were also jockeying for position, like how can we be a partner with these corporations on um, implementing various things, whether it was, you know, hunger or health issues or environmental issues or whatever. So we worked with a lot of NGOs to kind of professionalize them and position them to be a partner with many of these corporations. And so you, I mean, that sounds like the the wild, wild... Far East, or how would you describe it then? So it's so presumably business is done a little differently over there. Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, life in India and and many Indian people like they go, wow, man, respect that you that you put up with five years there or that you live five years there because. Right. You know, it's a totally different reality. Like you're never alone. There's always stuff going on. It, it, you know, it heaves. The country heaves, quite frankly, with people, and and it's growing and developing very, very quickly. Um, so there's lots of opportunity there. There's also lots of issues there. There's the still the caste system, which although it's theoretically outlawed according to the constitution that was created when India got its independence, it's still very much a cultural practice. And so, you know, 40% of of Indian women are anemic and 40% of children have stunting and rickets and other issues because they don't have enough nutrition. And there's just no end of, you know, pollution. And, you know, every year around, starting around the fall, you'll read in the newspaper about the air quality in Delhi because it's wintertime, there's inversions, it's hard up against the Himalayas. And it's it's a very challenging place to to live, and people's lives, quite frankly, every day are um, you know compromised. And now you add to that the climate crisis, and if any of your viewers um, you know are following that, you know this year temperatures were regularly 48, 49, 50 degrees Celsius, right? right? So. India is really, you know, ground zero for a lot of major challenges. Um, and then, uh, so there was no no shortage of things to do. I also became very involved in the, I was became the chair of the Indo-Canadian Business uh, cha- or Chamber of Commerce uh, in the Delhi NCR region. NCR means National Capital Region. I was very involved in the Dutch community, business community, as well as the British business community. So... You know, I had my tentacles into all kinds of things and a lot of really significant, powerful Indians also interacted with those groups. So I had an amazing experience, I have to say. So when I talked to you in person in the middle of that, I mean, it seemed like you were there for 
indefinitely or the long haul? Why, I guess the obvious question is why did you? Well, so suddenly be, I noticed on LinkedIn that you you moved back to Vancouver Island of all places. Yeah. A little different. Uh, yeah, that was like a 180. <laughs> no, yeah. no question about it. So why did you, why did you leave? We, we said at the beginning, we'd give it five years. Right. It was a five-year project. Right. I, I have lived a lot of my life in five-year increments, okay. right? Five years is long enough that you can set some goals. It's short enough that you're not com overly committing to something. Um, so it was a five-year plan. We stayed for five years, but during that five-year time frame, the pollution in Delhi became really untenable. Like you couldn't see a hundred meters down the down the street some days. Right. And our, we had a, we uh, we have a child who at the time was I think you know uh, ranging between nine and fourteen years old. And the New York Times, um, there was a, there was a reporter there who wrote a very famous article uh, because he was leaving his his child's lungs were collapsing from living in Delhi, and it was like we can't ignore anymore. Although we were very committed to the work, we can't ignore the health issues. And I know it's kind of white privilege just to flee because many many millions of people don't have that choice. But we were there voluntarily, and after five years, we just said, you know, enough is enough. So part of its five-year plan, part of it is personal decision to yeah, get absolutely. out. Yeah, absolutely. So did you have something lined up when you you just left it all again? or? Uh, yeah, we kind of left it, and then uh, we wanted to decompress for a while. So we actually moved to an island off of Nanaimo called Gabriel Island. It's a, right. it's a small, artist, artsy island, and right. it was more... We bought an acreage and it was kind of like, well, let's decompress and do some consulting work for a while and just kind of right the ship for a little bit. And then th I got back, you know, onto a career trajectory, which has taken me to where I am today. So, yeah. And so back to Vancouver Island, Cam now Kamloops for the, uh, I mean, you're in Kamloops basically because that's where the, the our head office is, is, is in Kamloops there's right. 500 people in Kamloops and there's a secondary office in Vancouver which has about 400 people so, but my role is based in Kamloops so I think I might have asked you this but no questions about gambling in the job interview at all nope they Nothing. wanted what they wanted was somebody who could help them navigate the transition of the company to a social purpose model and so when we talk about a social purpose business we mean a company that re that really places a social purpose at its pinnacle of, for its reason for being, why it exists, so it replaces the mission. And generally speaking, a social purpose company is one that's trying to make the world better and its growth is a positive force in society. Okay, so I read that Forrester report that you commissioned. So yes. here's a quote from it. The, the term yes. social purpose company is defined as a company whose enduring reason is being to create a better world. These companies are an engine for good in that they create a better world, their growth is a positive force in society. That's a, it's a lot to live up uh, up to, right? Yep. So I mean, I've seen this that like, what's what's ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So I've seen that a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a hot thing, and suddenly there's ESG gurus. There's courses you can take, and so I did. Like you know, Google's my favorite thing to do right. when I'm bored, and I just googled ESG and. And what pops up right away is, um, in, in all honesty, it's ESG oil, ESG mining. So, you know, it's like, you know, is that is it just a, is it a marketing thing just to some make of, people uh, look good? Or Listen, there's some blowback that's happening, to quite frankly. You know, it comes down to companies, are they authentic or inauthentic? And right. there are companies who have bad practices who try to wrap themselves in a virtuous cloak. Yes. Uh, 
ESG at its core, though, is something that is meaningful and substantial and, and, and is an orientation that a company takes to acknowledge its impacts from an ESG perspective. But ESG is not what I'm talking about. When I talk about a social, we have okay. an ESG framework, but it's, it rolls well, it's up different. to our social purpose. But being a social purpose company, and our social purpose is to generate win-wins there's right. the gambling language. Right. Win-wins for the greater good. Yes. And so what we've been doing over the last two years since we adopted the social purpose is in every part of our business looking for how can we generate win-wins for the greater good as an employer, uh, in our products, in the way that we market, in the way uh, that we view our role in the world, the, the kinds of even like our legal team, whatever, like it's, it, it's a total mind shift. And our employees are embracing it. Uh, you know, they they always knew that we were doing something good in the sense that we were contributing uh, money to the province that was used for, as I said earlier, for healthcare, right. education, and and so on. But now it's not just the end of pipe. It's all the decision, you know, and the money that comes out the other end. It's all the decisions that get us there, and can we make better decisions and so make them more money? Is it a, like a set of standards or like best practices for organizations to or? be a social purpose company? Yeah. Well, there's a number of things that you would do if you want to be a legitimate social purpose company, uh, you know, from um, how you engage with your stakeholders, how you engage with your employees, how you make decisions and so on. But there isn't necessarily a standard per se that exists presently. That's actually kind of in development uh, and I'm involved in some of that work, but it, but there isn't like a checklist that you say, if I do these 15 things, I'm a social purpose right. company. I, I mean, you know, I've worked for financial institutions and I'm certainly, I, there's a contact or two of mine that are now talking about ESG anyway. Yep. And and so I worry that this sort of thing is, is um, potentially window dressing. And it says that in your report as well, right? So is a bank, you know, really trying to make the world a better place or are they, are they trying to, all these companies, the oil and mining and banking, are they trying to make a lot of money for their shareholders? Because, you know, if you're a president of a bank and if you, you're not making enough money for your shareholders, you get fired, right? So how that must be hard for you to push that through, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's interesting because some of our employees, you know, have said to me, well, is our shareholder, who's the province of British Columbia, is our shareholder going to be happy that we offer them less money being a social purpose company? And I'm like, I don't know where you got this idea from. It's not a zero-sum game. Right. I think if you look at, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the the underbelly that was revealed in terms of inequality through the pandemic, the climate crisis, you know, there's, there's myriad problems of, uh, you know, in in the world, if you're a company in this day and age and you don't take stock of those issues, then quite frankly, you're going to find yourself less profitable and more and more on the margins. And so it, it being a social purpose company gives you license to really embrace some of those challenges and figure out how you can be a part of the solution. And in so doing... Like we hired 20 people in our marketing team over the last uh, six months because we had some growth and we had some you know turnover. And those employees came because we're a social purpose company. They are energized by what we're doing. Uh, whether you're a millennial or a Gen Z or whatever, people want meaning in their life. Leadership skills have changed. There's an expectation that we can bring our whole selves to work, that we're going to talk about difficult subjects. And that's part of what it means to be a company. I think uh, a good company today 
And more and more companies are being confronted with some of these other issues that I just mentioned. And if they try and explain them away or poo-poo them, then quite frankly, uh, you know, consumers are going to vote with their wallets in many cases. Right. Do you, is the trend in that direction uh, more and more progressive or is there pushback just politically across? Do, I mean, uh, you know, it, it depends on what country you're in. I watch too much politics or I did until I kind of just detox from it all. But, um, you know, European American countries stuff, I mean. tend to be more uh, on this model. Even the UK is quite a leader in the space around social purpose and community benefit corporations. So companies that that build right into their charter of incorporation uh, that they're going to be responsive to the community that their sole purpose is not the Milton Friedman school of only the shareholder is supreme that that actually the way that you generate wealth for the company is by being more mindful of who your stakeholders are we call that stakeholder capitalism these days as opposed to shareholder capitalism um, so that's a trend in the United States it's much more polarized I think right. you know every aspect of life in America, it's a broken country, if you ask me. Yeah, and it's at war with itself. And in the US, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, the gov governors of states who are, who are bringing in laws that say, we don't want, if you're managing our money, we don't want any of this ESG bullshit uh, presented to us. We want you just to maximize profits, for example. Yes. So it's much more polarized south of the border. In Canada, it's not still... speaking in a little bit, uh, even well, in the Western provinces. I mean, I'm just a. It depends white on what province. To be right? honest, depends on what province you're in. I mean, I yeah. live on the left coast. We have an NDP government. Right. You know, uh, their 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 priorities are things like people first, sustainable development, and so on. So we're very much aligned with the government that we right. currently have in power. Um, but even in Ontario, you know, you're, which is run with a conservative government, you're seeing a lot of companies that are much more mindful of what their impact uh, in the community is, the social impact, the environmental impact that they're creating, and they need to wrap their mind around it. If they want to, there's a war for talent on, and younger people in particular, they want this stuff. And they've seen their parents sort of sell their souls for the company man and get tossed aside when yeah. they're 55, and they're like, Screw it! I don't. I, that's not what I'm interested in. I want a job with meaning, and that's where I think a lot of this work comes. That's in. That's a big trend in the research too. I, I, uh, I people want more meaning. They want more accountability, and we can talk about that a little bit. So, if uh, that just made me think of something, but if the if the government changed changed in BC, are you relatively is the lottery corporation? relatively autonomous from whoever might be running the government? Well, we get a we get a letter every year called a mandate letter and that tells us what the government's policies are and they expect us to support them. If we go from a more left government to a right government, then we need to support whatever the government of the day uh what it determines the priorities are going to be. But I think you can even see it irrespective of ideology, um, most uh, governments today are more focused on uh, issues relating to environmental uh, concerns or social concerns, housing prices, whatever the case may be. So I don't think it's going to change materially for the way that we um, handle ourselves. And we, quite frankly, as I said, have replaced our mission with the social purpose. And right. unless the government of the day says, get rid of that, Right. We want you to just, you know, put all that aside. Well, we'll have to do that, but I don't think they will because we're inspiring a lot of change, not only in our industry, but with other crown corporations and other companies across our in, our, our, our industry and across the country. So the money comes in mm -hmm. 
and then the money goes out and you're you're maybe building capital projects, whatever it is. Do you have an opinion? Do you get to have an opinion on whatever the money is spent on? Or? No, we don't. No. That uh, Now, we generate about $1.5 billion every year, uh, at least we will this year, in profits. Right. Um, of that, about $140 million will the government will give to community groups of various kinds, parent advisory communities, sports groups, community groups. Some money goes to what we call host local government. So if you have a casino in your community, you get some of that right. money. 7% plus of what we generate goes to Indigenous uh, um, uh, communities in, in, in British Columbia and so on. So... A lot of that, we don't say where that money, we don't have a say in where that money goes, but it goes to good things. And then the healthcare system and the education system is where the rest goes. So I want to talk to you about gambling for a second. Because sure. it is a, it is a com- controversial yep. topic, and I'm, I'm no saint or anything, but uh, I don't gamble that much. But I'm in a couple sports pools. And so so from, the, from the BCLC on the, on the website, I guess, uh, game, quote, gambling has an enduring appeal because of uh, the suspense found in the magic moment between net and result. The bet is often lost, but an experience is always won. Right. But for a small percentage of players, the magic mo- moment can take a dark turn. BCLC exists to ensure gambling in British Columbia is safe, legal, and harm-free. So what I, my observation is, you know, with pro sports, uh, what used to be illegal is now legal across North America. Single certainly. event betting, yep. And it's it's um, kind of taking over because legal gambling companies now are sponsoring everything as well. Like I'm talking about football and baseball. Mm-hmm. So it's everywhere. And what I worry about um, is that what you know. Sometimes you used to just watch sports for the. For the, the for the well for the joy of yeah, of the game the athletic uh, accomplishment, but now it's getting I, I I fear that now you'll only watch it because um, you got a wager on it. Like even I, I feel that myself even in football pools and stuff. If I don't if I'm not somehow involved in a game, I won't watch it. Where when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. I would watch it just to see who you know this exciting final yeah. match or whatever it was. I, I, I don't know. How do you how do you sort of rationalize? I'm going to respond to that in a couple of ways. One is the, still the vast majority of sports fans don't bet. They right. don't they they don't want to bet or they don't feel comfortable betting. They don't understand how, how how odds are are created and so on. So there's still a huge pool of people that just watch the game because they want to watch the game. For those who want to make it more interesting and and bet, that option exists. Now you're also putting a frame of reference on this that is Ontario based. Right. So Ontario has changed its rules and all the other Canadian provinces have not. So I'll, let me just quickly explain. Single event betting is legal across Canada. <clears throat> but in Ontario, the government has licensed up to 70 companies to offer uh, various uh, gambling products. And many of them are focused in the uh, sports field. So... Because, you know, how many Torontonians does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one to stand there while the world revolves around them. Sorry, <laughs> Torontonians. I used to live in Toronto. But, you're allowed um, to say that. But, uh, you know, the reality is that people in Ontario and Canada, for that matter, they see what's happening in Ontario. The media is here. It spills over into other provinces. And so we think that everybody is like fan duel and, 
you know, DraftKings and, and all these other. Well, in the um, States too, right? All that stuff. Uh, yeah, States, and all that stuff. But if everywhere. you live in most provinces in Canada, you can only bet with the legal option, which is the state sanctioned one, and in our case, BCLC. So, uh, you know, we have sewn up partnerships with all of the key sports teams in British Columbia. Um, but we do place a really strong focus on what we call player health. Some people call it responsible gambling. Our vision is to have the healthiest players in the world. We have a program that we call Game Sense, and we actually license it to seven jurisdictions in Canada and many in the United States, including MGM hotels and resorts, because we have a world-leading program uh, and that is really designed to help um, ensure that people understand how the games work, that uh, people have the right skills and knowledge to debunk certain myths you know, there's no such thing as, oh, this machine is hot, or if I rub my, you know, rabbit foot that I'm going to suddenly, you know, win this game. That's not the case. So we educate people a lot about that. And we put in place different uh, things like on our uh, online uh, system called Play Now. You can, uh, you can, you can have a, you have a dashboard when you sign in, how much money did you spend? You can set a limit, how much you can set a time limit. So we've, we created a bunch of tools, AI tools and so on to help people manage, you know, and, and ensure that they're using gambling as a form of entertainment. So I can spend 200 bucks on a night and I can go see Elton John in a concert, or I can spend 200 bucks with my friends and go to a casino and have a night of entertainment. Yeah, It's the same thing, right? And if we ban it, and you know that's where my Dutch pragmatism comes in. You ban alcohol in pro prohibition. What do you do? You push it underground. You ban abortion. What do you do? You push it underground. What do you you know? So right. there's always ga gambling. It's just gambling has existed for yeah. centuries, if not millennia. Actually, the yeah. Great Wall of China was in part financed by lottery, and the modern day lottery goes back to Bruges, Belgium, in the 1450s. That's where we get the word lottery from. It comes from the Flemish word lotinge. Um, and that was used to raise money voluntarily for city coffers to be used on public works uh, because they knew that people wouldn't tolerate any more taxes. So, you know, it is a form of, definitely there is a profit margin. It's a form margin. of taxation, is it not? Or well, no, it's, vo well, vo if you want to call it voluntary right. taxation right. in a sense, but it's not like anybody's holding, if you'll, you know, holding a gun to your head uh, to do it. Right. And it, and we want to deliver you a great entertainment experience, like you right. said, whether you win or not. Right. And for a lot of people, you know, I sat in a cab not not long ago in Vancouver and the guy, you know, we, we had a conversation and he said, oh, you work for the Lottery Corporation. He goes, you know what? I love to buy a scratch and win lottery tickets. And I even if I don't win, I feel good knowing that the money goes to good causes right. in the province. Right. Yeah, I mean that if I were to, you know, give, give uh, I I've been to, I I actually love Las Vegas. I've been there several times. I I don't gamble there though. And I it's a different I, model too in I, Vegas, right? It's I, private companies that are there. Well, I go to Las Vegas profits. for the conventions. It's sure. kind of the modern. Uh, I read Playboy for the articles, kind of thing. I go there. <laughs> right. for, that's my. I worked on that. I worked yeah. on that. So that was a great line. Okay. Um, but. Uh, but I like the idea if you go to a casino or, or engage in gambling at all, it's like in entertainment. So give yourself a budget. Yeah. So whatever it is, let's say it's a hundred bucks. I'm going to casino. When the hundred bucks In my is opinion, gone, the house always wins. So it, it always wins. Uh, or most of the time. So that hundred bucks, you know, you're spending it. You could be on a show, as you say, or you're spending it and, and there'll be some highs and lows along the way on your way to zero, right? Yeah. Because you're going to. The longer you gamble, the more likely it is 
that you that you uh, that you lose. I do, you know, I do. It is pretty interesting sometimes when you. I mean, I've gone to Vegas, but I've also worked there. Right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're waking, you're getting up at seven or eight in the morning. Some people have been up all night. That said, it's it's an acquired taste. But actually, I like I like Las Vegas. It's an odd thing. But you know, Vegas has transformed as well over the years, right? You go there because you want to see a Cirque du Soleil show or yes. the Celine show or Adele or whoever is performing. Yeah. And then there's great other attractions and amusement parks and so on. So Vegas did go through a period of you know where it, where it needed to reinvent itself, which it has done. But it's a very different model. It's a destination place, right? In British Columbia, we we distribute the casinos in communities across the province. It's it's not that sort of come one come all to one part of the province to to uh, gamble, and we are not motivated to generate profits just for the sake of our shareholders. We are told, you know, the government has written into our mandate that we have to. Do take a very careful approach to player health and um, anti-money laundering and a range of things, which we do, uh, in order to ensure that it is a, uh, a form of entertainment and not uh, something that is, is negative. Now, are there people who struggle with addiction around gambling? 100%. Right. They would anyway, you know, uh, they would probably go underground. They wouldn't have the supports we have in every casino, what's called a game sense advisor. We have them online as well. We're the first, one of the first jurisdictions globally to ever do that. So we offer supports. We use non-stigmatizing language, right? We try and support people if they, if they feel that, you know, they can also voluntarily self-exclude and say, please don't let me into your property anymore. And we honor that. And if they decide at a point in time, they want to come back, we have a program that they have to follow in order to come back and, 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 and demonstrate really that they're, that they're ready. But there's also that need to find a balance between free will and, and a nanny state, right? Like if somebody says, I want to gamble and I'm ready to gamble, well, you know, we can't stop people for, uh, from doing that. Um, it's their choice, It's and it is a form of entertainment. So there's absolutely a razor's edge, and that's one of the things that's most appealing to me and most interesting to the work is that is that there is that tension constantly between, you know, the form of entertainment and that side the where it side. can tip t- the dark side, yeah, the side that, that can tip some people in to a place that's not in their interest or the interests of their family. Do you like the job? Absolutely. Yeah. Why? Because it's self-explanatory, I suppose. Well, no. I mean, because the work that that we were doing as a social purpose company is infused, is being infused in every part of the business, right? So first of all, I'm getting to know every aspect of the company and we're a $3 billion company, but I'm also, you know, we're we're incorporating the social purpose into the employee experience. We're incorporating into our our brand. We're incorporating, uh, we're filtering our products through it. Um, we are uh, meaningfully engaging in indigenous reconciliation as a result of being a social purpose company is giving us more license to do a better job and, and think differently as a company. So for me, it's really exciting. And part of my role is also to inspire other businesses. So I'm working with our media buyers to uh, media buying service. Um, they buy a billion dollars every year in Canada and I'm, invi- I'm giving them advice. I'm advising our um, uh, uh, advertising agencies. And I'm, I'm trying to create, help create change in the industry that goes far beyond just ourselves. And from that perspective, it's really satisfying. It's also important. I think that people also are, 
aware of their own impact and not just point a finger at one or two industries and blame them for everything. We all yeah. are part of this, this, this journey and all part of the impacts and the challenges that the globe is facing. And we're trying to be more conscious as a company. And I think more companies should be doing what we're doing. And um, we're open to the input and the feedback, both from our employees as well as our stakeholders. And I think something that's really critical to us as a company is that stakeholder engagement. So we're in the midst of re totally refreshing and updating our stakeholder engagement framework, setting goals making with each stakeholder group, making sure that we listen to them, that we take on board their worldview and try and find the, the, uh, the sweet spot between all those um, different opinions. And, you know, you, I think we will, we emerge as a better company. I think society is better for it. And I think we can inspire other businesses as well in, so in the act of doing that work. But I don't think anybody has perfection, you know, and if perfection is your goal, you're always going to be disappointed, right? But you have to be clear about what your goals are. And um, it reminds me of a, of, of, an, of, a, of a statement that was made of a via rail conductor who's, and somebody said, well, why do you bother to, you know, publish a timetable since your trains are always late? And he said, and the, he said, well, how else would we know how far behind schedule we are? <laughs> right. And so it's that kind of thing. Like it's important to have goals and to know where you want to go and sure we're not going to be perfect and we're going to learn from it. But the one thing that we're doing and that I've sort of inculcated with all of our team is is we have to talk about what we're learning, what we did right, and what we did wrong, and it's all open source. So you reference this paper that 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 we commissioned, and that's how does marketing look different in a social purpose company? And we want to give all of this away. We we did a climate risk assessment. We're working with our the, the what we call service providers. They operate the casinos with us in a joint venture. We're sharing that information with them. We're sharing it with our colleagues um, in other crown corporations. We've brought 30-something crown corporations in British Columbia together in the month of November around diversity and inclusion and what does that mean and how can crown corporations do better and so on. And so we are giving all of this away. We're not husbanding it. Uh, we want to inspire other organizations to do better too. And will we make missteps along the way? 100%. But so will you in your personal life and so will other people in their personal life or their business life. And if we, all we do is call each other out for our failures, we're never going to make progress. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're doing, uh, you're doing good work. I, I, um, uh, no, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, you, you have a five-year plan. I have a five-week uh, plan. <laughs> so uh, you've got me beat there. So, but thanks for coming by, Peter. I, uh, thanks for I'm asking sent some tough questions. Yeah, I skipped a few, so I'll mail the, I'll mail I'll mail the rest to you. Okay. So, uh, but uh, but thanks for coming. I do appreciate the long voyage out here. It was my pleasure, Jim, and uh, and hopefully, you know, your viewers will take something away from today's conversation. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment or if you want to be on the show, send me an email at connectionsvideopod at gmail .com. And please subscribe.